a podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. Hey Bev, thanks for coming in. Um, so first question, what's your earliest memory of someone who was good at life? Oh God, that's actually that's not difficult. It's my mum. I know everyone probably says this, their mum. No, they don't. Um, and it's because she wrote this down in a diary, so because she thought it was immensely cute. It was when I was around f- four and a half, five... And I had to go to the doctors, and apparently the doctor asked me something, or the nurse asked me something, and she was like, oh, I'm good at this, or knitting or something. Or she, that's it. So she was knitting. And I said, oh, my mum can knit. And then she goes, oh, can she do this, sewing, cooking? And I just basically went on this long list of, my mum can do this, and my mum can do that, and my mum can do the other, and my mum's brilliant. And the lady turned to my mum and said, you know, you're a real superstar in your daughter's eyes. And I was only like four and a half or something. Has your mum told you this, or do you remember it? She wrote it down in a diary, and I found it after my mum died. I found it, and I read it. So I've got tears in my eyes just thinking about it. And and, and I must have, like, thought that at the age of four and a half, that my mum... I mean, I know we all think our mums are great when when we're that age, but I really did think she was hitting it out of the park. So, yeah. Sorry, look, I'm in tears now. I've been just thinking about it. Yeah, it was really special. Um, That's so wonderful. (laughs) So what did she do? Was she just was she, did she bring you up? Um, yeah, yeah. So mom my mum was a stay-at-home mum. My dad was part of their family business. Um, they had an interesting journey to the UK. So my mum and dad both came from East Africa, where there was a there's a big Asian population, um, yeah. and it all kind of stems from um, the British wanted to build the railroads in Africa, so they went to India and they got talent from India <laughs> um, so there's a whole kind of there's you know they talk about brain drain of kind of yeah. entrepreneurial people who left to go and build the railroad so that would have been my kind of great grandfather went um, and then they settled in different places and so my mum grew up in Uganda wow. went to school in India though I don't know why her parents descended she was one of um, 11 kids Wow. Um, and then was a refugee post kind of the Idi Amin um, issue, yeah, regime. So they, they, she had a lovely life in Africa. They did really well. They were well, you know, they had money, tennis courts, and then left everything and just came with a suitcase. And she's, you know, she had some great, great stories which were fairly harrowing. Um, so she arrived here on, and the next day went to Oxfam, got a coat, and then walked into Woolworths and got a job. So um, and she worked in Woolworths, in Woolies. Yeah, but we, and then she she gave up working when she met my dad. It's quite you know quite traditional for Indian women to kind of stay at home. Yeah, um, and I suppose this was in the kind of seventies, so not really when women really worked. Yeah. Um, so she brought us up. Um, my dad travelled a lot, so we ended up actually going to boarding school. Oh wow! Fairly young. What age? Um, I was eight. Yeah, gosh, that is young, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, um, but. Yeah, she she yeah she was definitely a big influence on my life. What were you like at boarding school? Um, so my first boarding school was a predominantly boys boarding school. Oh yeah. There's no no wonder I ended up in the city. Um, I was the only girl in my class, and there were something like seven girls who boarded, and then the rest were kind of boys. Um, it was a really happy place, 
really happy. It's the kind of thing you imagine in Enid Blyton books where they you climb trees and make camps and yeah. you know um, sneak sugar sandwiches out. And um, <laughs> I'm actually sandwich. friends with the, my headmaster on Facebook. Um, really? It's a really happy place, and I put um, I do put kind of I think my self esteem down to the fact that I had a happy childhood, whether it was at home with my parents or yeah. At, this first boarding school that I went to. Yeah. Really lovely place. Um, and then I went to another one, all-girls school. Yeah. <laughs> it was fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it, what, what it taught me, which actually really helped me <laughs> with my career as a fund selector and, like, you know, assessing people as fund managers, yeah. um, was just that living with so many different types of personality types and just having to watch. It really kind of upped my EQ because I've... I know I've got way too much of it. I'm way too um, aware of what's going on around. And because you are living with so many different personality types and watching all the time of reactions between different people and how they yeah. behave. And yeah, yeah. Are you fascinated by people then? Yeah, um, I, I've always been interested in the interaction between people and baffled when people can't see, you know, situations arising yeah. and or, what the outcome's going to be. Playing out in front of them. I mean, I, I did spend my whole childhood watching soap operas for that as well. For that reason, I'd literally be there and I'd be like, yeah, they're going to have an affair and then like 20 episodes later. Yeah. And it, it was that, that sort of thing. It was just, I was just fascinated by... Relationships. Inter- yeah. And, yeah. And, and we placed so much onus on exams and results and data. Yeah. And, and we seem to have forgotten in the workplace that we are human beings, first of all, with masses of psychology and evolution within us yeah and we don't take any of that into account and actually we often dismiss you know our our gut instinct and we kind of you know i've actually just been judging some awards and a lot of the candidates who are analysts all said like you know i like to step away from the noise of the noise of people to chattering i don't want them to influence my opinion and i'm like why wouldn't you want them to because they're going to be making the same decisions do you not want to hear what they're doing not to copy them but just to factor that into your own decision making yeah absolutely um, you know there's a lot of people who think the meeting within four walls around a desk is the important bit well actually i find the the walk to the elevator is the bit where you learn the most learn yeah what's when people's going shoulders on. drop and you can ask them absolutely anything yeah and then you can learn their true motivation or you know you can learn something about them that you wouldn't have picked up in a meeting yeah so their guards down yeah. um Little so tiny things that would, you know, that should actually be what, you know, makes the basis of your decision making, not yeah. um, anything else. Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Everyone kind of in meetings can often bring together not only what they, what the answer of how they've thought about, you know, what they're solving their role in the company is and what they're there to do, but also how that interrelates to others. So there can be lots of like game theory at play and politics and things like that. And it doesn't bring out the best in people sometimes. No, like understanding someone's motivation as a person is it is probably the first thing you should try and do. Yeah. Um I, I remember kind of um ten years ago now, but around the time RBS blew up. Um, and the number of fund managers I met who talked about, you know, who held RBS shares and the different responses about the whites of the eyes, you know, of having met Fred the Shred just recently and the ones who believed him and the ones who didn't. Now, he would have been saying the same thing to everybody. Mm. It's how you perceived his, you know, body language which would have told you whether he was telling the truth or not, mm. um, whether you 
you know, to understand what his underlying motivations are as a person. Was it to safeguard the customers? Yeah. Or was it to safeguard his own reputation and ego? Those are the differences. That's what you're trying to get at. Yeah. Um, Have you ever, uh, meeting somebody, felt like this is they're in way too much of their autopilot mode here? I'm, I'm in a bit of a, I'm caught in their monologue. Have you ever come up with any ways of kind of breaking that and getting... Yeah, so I, I suppose in, in my career, I was in that privileged position where I got to meet lots of really smart investors. Because um, as a funds analyst, I probably um, interviewed thousands, if not more, probably yet thousands, thousands of fund managers. And after you kind of, the initial um, awe of meeting someone great and good who manages billions and all the rest of it, you start to realize that it's just a marketing machine so what i tend to do is particularly when it's not when it's one-to-one you can lead the meeting how you want but when there's other people in the room you can actually hide while your colleagues do some of the work and i used to just flip through often you know flip through the the presentation go head straight to the appendix yeah. Yeah. So there's always something in there they don't want you to see or and I just listen while you know my colleagues are bashing them about some stock or the other or duration or whatever it is I just wanted to hear how they responded and then you can come back to them after so there were lots of little tricks like yeah I'd always find find some bit of information that they don't want you to know and then you can just like that Columbo moment where you yeah. just kind of look up and go oh just one more thing by the way yeah we, we found out the gloves weren't in the plane <laughs> oh yeah god I did that once to a fund manager he was a young guy and he was in a team of um with a with a we, you know he was managing money with a with someone who's obviously been in the industry for years and they buried it in the um in the back and they said something like you know team has 40 years of joint Experience and I could, you know, in my head, I was like, Well, that means this kid's got two because that yeah. guy's been around 38. <laughs> so I just asked that very simple question, yeah. And it was in a, at a conference, and then the kind of the other 10 people around the table suddenly woke up when this poor chap just went three years or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Then I just sat back and let the kind of the bomb go off, and I just went, Um, isn't that weird how people aggregate years' experience? Like, there's 120 years of experience, it seems so like. What does that mean? It but that, that goes back to the whole numbers things. We love a we want yeah, a number. What a high number. What does it matter? You know, I mean yeah. I find myself I find myself doing it where I'll kind of go, should I say I've got fifteen years experience in the city or should I say nearly twenty? Because I feel like yeah. people are gonna be like, Oh, well just fifteen or you know. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 that thing that we, we feel that more experience or more you know. But there, but there is a there's a there's obviously a, a learning curve that, that you want from people. Like, you know, you, maybe you don't want two years' experience. But after a certain point, it's then it's just... Yeah. You should have learned the job by then. That's right. Then I think after 10 years of anything, isn't it? They say the 10,000-hour rule. Yeah. That, that feel, if I apply that to my life, that's vaguely true. Yeah. Things have spent about 10 years. And then on. actually I think that experience isn't about experience. It's about making sure that you've actually adapted and learning and moving with the times. Yeah, yeah. In the same way that you're seeing more senior people in the industry aren't grasping technology in the way yeah. young people obviously do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you see it within marketing, for instance. And, you know, how many people in our industry use various social media platforms? Not a lot. Yeah. They use LinkedIn. Which yeah. Is just not Talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's you know, it, it's it? like, did you know there are these other platforms that actually the yeah. next generation of people only use or yeah. yeah so i think after you've got that kind of ten thousand hours you then have to almost reset and start again absolutely yeah um 
When did you reset and start again in your career, in your life, let's say? Not just career, but life. I've had some a few defining moments. Um, but probably around seven years... Seven years ago? Yeah, hold on, my son's seven years. Seven years ago. And it wasn't actually having him. Um, my mum my passed away when he was four months old. And it was out of the blue. And she dropped dead in front of me. And she had a, a brain hemorrhage. And she was perfectly healthy otherwise. Um, and it was quite traumatic the experience because we also donated her organs so they kind of then have to keep you on a life support machine for some time and test and and do all this but it's something she'd always wanted to do and she was very vocal about telling us that you know if if it ever happens I want to donate my organs so we were like we knew you know she wanted to do it um so that was a big big moment for me in that I had I lost a safety net that a lot of us have that don't we don't realize we have um, and if you speak to people who've lost their parents, often they'll say, oh, my God, I'm not anchored anymore. And, I, and that's how I felt. I felt like I had to then be a grown-up. Um, I didn't have someone to call, you know, I've had a bad day, Mum. I was then... Because my dad wasn't, you know, in the best of health and he was losing his memory and he was the child and I had to look after him. Oh. So that was a big moment for me. Yeah. Um, but then... And then fast forward a few years, I had, a, I had another child. And the children actually weren't defining moments. I loved them to bits, but, you know, I would have handled that. <laughs> they, you know, they're just part and parcel of what you do in life. Um, and then when I, when I lost my job, that was another kind of point where something that defined me for a long time... Were you on mat leave when I uh, I just returned from maternity leave. Yeah. So it was slightly out of the blue. Um, and, you know, it kind of put a hard stop it was almost like you know trying to hit someone to press the button and I was almost sudden oh how do I define myself now so it was that kind of definition you know the the becoming a mother thing was fine that's that's what you're meant to do this was this was who I was um something I loved doing yeah um and that's that's when I stopped and started to really reevaluate what I wanted to do with my life and what my legacy was yeah and what I wanted to be remembered by um, what was your mum's legacy then? What do you think of you? And she saved three lives in her death. You know, she she stopped three people from families from being destroyed. Um, she was so healthy that even in her early sixties, her kidney and liver were so healthy that she was able to give those. You know, um, so for me, and my mum was just like that. She just touched people's hearts wherever she went. Mm. You know, so for me, that was her legacy. You know, her. The funeral was no, you know, there's no room at the inn. Basically, it was brimming over <laughs> with people, and um, so, and I just thought, God, you know, I wasn't thinking about my funeral. She, she won an award afterwards from she got the honour of St John's for, um, and and you know all, and I just thought, oh, what, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a what have I done? And yeah. and I realised that. When I worked in the city, actually, my motivation was always uh, poor Mrs. Miggins, and we'd get strutted out, you know, looking after and caretaking the hard-earned money of people who who have, you know, actually trusted us with it. And that yeah. was always part of my decision-making. And I thought, God, you know, but as a culture in the industry, something's gone awry, and yeah. there's a mismatch between what's going on in the real world and what happens in the bubble yeah. of the city. And I think because... And then once I'd lost my job, I wasn't in the bubble daily. Yeah. 
I started to meet people, you know, around the school gate or locally or wherever who, who actually had such different lives, you know, and financial health is so important, you know, alongside physical and mental health now. People are talking about it, but yet... They, they underpin each other. They yeah. all really do. The if biggest worry re- of most people yeah. is, is paying their bills yeah. and where the money's coming from. And as an industry, I just thought, we need to start looking at that. We need to start understanding that stop selling to ourselves and yeah. start to talk to yeah. people out there. Because actually, could you... You know, if you if you lived on a state pension, could you live on twenty eight pounds a day? No. Pay all your bills, your rent, your mortgage, your water, and eat, and now buy a TV license. I mean, that's what a state pension is. That's right, yeah. Twenty eight yeah. pounds a day, and all it is is that the education isn't there about what's what you need to be doing. Yeah. Um, so. Did that then become a bit of a a mission then? Yeah, for me, it's about um, change changing the culture of the industry to um i think it's a difficult one to do actually change the culture of the industry to just be better you know we we have so many big institutions who just don't treat the people who work there well yeah oh small institutions as well and actually without people we don't have an industry we're a human capital business yeah and we we haven't rea- we seem to have not realised that the talent pool that we have available to us is shrinking. No one, no new talent externally wants to come into our industry. No one knows who we are because we're so hidden amongst the walls of the city. Does anyone know what asset management is or investment management? You know, people find their way here because they've heard about us before, but not many people have heard about us. Yeah. Um, you know, we need we need to open those doors up for the for the wider good, not just to bring talent in, but also for people to take care of their financial health. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, then, and then there's the aspect of cognitive diversity. Mm. Actually, if you want to make better decisions, you need to stop just looking at the same types of people. Yeah. You need the person in the room that maybe makes you feel slightly uncomfortable because they ask an awkward question <coughs> or isn't interested in the numbers or can read body language, yeah. has a bit of EQ. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's, that's what you need in the room, and that's, I suppose, the whole point of trying to bring... You know, at City Hive, our, our mission is all about bringing balance to the, the industry, and, and that's part of it. Yeah. The biggest part is bringing people from different backgrounds in because yeah. of their experiences, meaning they have a different viewpoint. Yeah, for, for an industry that's obsessed with risk management, it's a massive blind spot <laughs> of risk... By yeah. not being more inclusive and bringing people who think differently and talk differently, different backgrounds and different ways of communicating. It's just, yeah, yeah it's baffling. It's, you know, we, we talk about diversification in every other area. Exactly, yeah. Your portfolios need to be sliced and diced by currency and asset allocation and stocks and sectors, yeah. but not the teams that manage them. Yeah. Um, and and it's, not, it's not taking anything away from the well-educated white guy. It yeah. really isn't. Yeah, yeah. It's just saying, well, you, all of you might might just have the same experiences, so you're not thinking about yeah. the same thing. It always baffles me when, when isn't <laughs> like some I don't know. Just take the example of um, feminine hygiene products. Now you're kind of sat around a table looking at a pharmaceutical, or you know, a, a, a Unilever or whoever is making those products, mm. and you're discussing it, but you're all men. What exactly experience do you have to be talking about a new product launch? Or mm. it's that it's that sort of yeah. Um, yeah. you know, 
or, or whenever I meet emerging markets managers, I know it's looking at stocks and you could be looking at them anywhere, but it's, I, I've always been baffled by someone telling me about the cultures of ethnic minorities or in their own country, you know, telling me about India or whatever. It's just like, Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm Indian, and I don't see it that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's just that, you know, recognition that actually someone might have a different viewpoint for a reason. Yeah. So if you weren't in this industry, what, what, what do you think you would choose to do? Let's say, um, let's just say money wasn't an issue. You could do any job, no matter how great or, or less paid it was. What do you think you would do? Oh, God, it's really sad. I think I'd still... I think I would still do fund selection. You can't. I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowing you to. Oh, the thing is, though, I always wanted to be. Um, I always wanted to be in the markets because I watched um, Trading Places when I was about 13 <laughs> and just fell in love with the idea of open outcry. That's genuine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely I love loved it. it. <laughs> and I've, you know, I've got to meet, uh, go, go on the New York Stock Exchange several times and wear the jackets and and all the rest. So, yeah. um, I always loved that. Maybe it was going to the all boys boarding school. That kind of um, what would I do if I wasn't doing this? Um, I don't know. That's the thing. That's the beauty of it. You just don't know what you do. Um, I, I could see you doing something like, you know, in a charity or a do you think? You know, medicine sans frontier. Type oh thing. no! Yeah, do I can think? see you front line. I don't like to leave the house though. <laughs> <laughs> front line. Um, I like. I do like to help people. I've always been someone who shares shares everything it's probably too much um so i do like to connect people and share and, you do connect a lot um, of people that's a i find big... it weird when people tell me like now they go oh, you're inspiring and i find that a bit weird because that's just who i am so i don't know yeah. um actually maybe if i wasn't doing this <laughs> really bizarre. maybe if i wasn't if i and money was no object i would continue to run our school pta which i do now and i don't have enough time for oh you but do get a lot of that yeah yeah and, and actually that is charity that is yeah. you know um, yeah I actually <laughs> um, even though I have no time you know to do it but I kind of structurally re, you know restructured it all and yeah um, yeah I think it would be something that while I was helping I don't know how hands on I'd want to be though like front line I think you'd end up you getting think, involved. Do you think I would be? How do you... Right, quite another good question. Talking about those two <laughs> different lives then, how would you define a successful life, especially looking back at your mum's legacy? If you're looking forward now, into the next 20 years, like what... You know, I mean, by the way, the term successful is one I'm forcing on to you. You can yeah. change that term if you want. What does it mean to you to say, to have a successful life? I think happiness... I think I just, for me, it's just happiness. Have I fulfilled, like, had a good day today? Can I sleep at night? That's, for me, success, right? Because, like, it's called the human race for a reason, because there's an end point. And when you're on your deathbed and you look back on your life, yeah. for me, the success would be, am I going to look back with regrets? Or am I going to... But do you regret as a person anyway? Because I think some people just don't... I just personally, I don't really do regrets. I look, I look at them and go, "Oh, that's a lesson learned there, everyone." Oh, there are. I have, I have certain regrets, which are all to do with probably my own personal kind of 
lack, lack of, I don't know, confidence or imposter syndrome. I mean, I regret not demanding more money when I worked or, you know, um, but that's, that's not to do with money, actually. That's to do with um, valuing myself. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I should have placed yeah. more value on myself with people I've worked with before. Um, and I'm, I'm actually just learning that now. I still don't fully accept that. So for me, it would be just about how, success for me would be about how I see myself. So what would that have given you differently then? Because I've had this experience with you where you, you've absolutely played a blinder in terms of talking to a room of people and you've been amazing. You've kept the whole thing going. You've taken different directions and you've been super, super a big so contributor. <laughs> no, you have. And afterwards you were like, oh, I was absolute shit. And I was like... I know, I literally went home and I was like, the whole weekend I was tearing my hair out going, oh, people are going to think I'm a complete no, idiot. No, 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 no. That guy challenged me over there. That da, 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 This person said this. Yeah, I mean, imposter syndrome out of the wazoo here. Right? So what, what are you saving? If you go back in, in time and you go, right, remember, Bev, don't think this now. It's not helpful. You actually are going to do well. What are you I don't think you can change not? that in a person, though. I think those are things that, that, that... That's who I am. And if I change that in me, that would then change who I am tomorrow. And that's not in a good way. I think part of my authenticity is... And you are neurotic as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic. Yeah. And, you know, and if you kind of say dyslexia is to do with words and things like that, dyspraxia is to do with the world, right? Yeah. I, the whole world is crazy to me, you know? Yeah. Um, and I have is to, that about 3D spatial stuff? I, I can't ride a bike. I went for lessons a couple of years ago because they put them on in our borough to try and teach you. They literally said to me, you know, I think you need more than... Everyone else in the blinking class could ride a bike within two days. I was like, I couldn't even get the, the, the scooting thing. Do you have stabilisers? No, I can't, I, can't, I can't get on my kids' scoots, scooter things that they do. Yeah, they school. are tough, though. So I, have no, I have no balance. I have no, no centre guide. I'll get lost. I'll go left when I think I should go right. And then I tell myself, go the opposite direction, then you think, and I'll still get lost. There is no... But, but it's more than that. It's not just directions. Yeah. It's not just perception. It's about everything in the world around me. The, the logic that norm, norm... I don't want to say normal, because I'm normal, but people who don't have dyspraxia or some sort of neurodiversity in their brain... Yeah the way they see things that are really logical. So often, if I'm, if I'm working at home and I've got my emails open in the evening and my husband sat next to me and he looks over and he's horrified to see that I have, like, 2,000 emails in my inbox, even though I've got loads of folders, and his inbox is just, like, tight, E and clear. And I'm just like, you know, but I can't... It's not about being disorganised because I'm re- I am good at logistics and organising. Yeah. It's just how I view the world. It's completely different to other yeah. people. Like your ordering system, your filing system. And, I, and I've actually learned to accept that now, whereas before I was always trying to put, you know, thinking there was something wrong with me. And, and yeah, force your way into the other yeah. way of doing it. Now I see myself as a superhero, and if someone doesn't <laughs> see great. what I see... Yeah, then... well, yeah, you've embraced it, it's... Yeah. It's a power. I mean, I mean that, that's something that so actually in, in, in all um, industries where you're, where you're looking at people to make judgments and decision make, you should be looking for people who think differently. And yeah. neurodiversity is the only one which you can actually put pen on paper and say this person thinks differently. Yeah. I mean, the other, other you know, diverse groups, you could, you could argue, well, that person may be a woman, but she has the same background as that man, they're going to think this the same. Or, there's lots of arguments around that, even now, and studies that try and prove that. But neurodiversity is the only one no one can argue against. Yeah, yeah. 
How has failure shaped you then? Because you've obviously had some challenges and succeeded through them. Um, I think for me, it's... I don't know whether it's shaped me, but I'm, I'm really resilient. So I just pick myself up and after I've stopped crying and stopped worrying about it and you know after a certain amount of time anyway the human brain lets lets go i mean grief is something that we're all inbuilt to let go of eventually you know there's a moment period of time where you grow and i think that's with failure as well there'll be a certain number of days or weeks where you're like oh my god i can't believe i did that and then you'll forget so i think i'm extremely resilient and i just you know just brush myself down and i'll just carry on yeah because you never... The thing that you've always got to remember is you might be the star of your own show, but you're not the star of anyone else's. Yeah. So that other person you think you've you know made a fool of yourself in front of will forget. I found that very freeing when I realised how little I registered in other people's minds. I used to go to meetings. <laughs> it's awful. I used to go to meetings when I first started. This is probably why I'm really bad at pitching. And, and call myself an idiot in front of people. So I'm a real idiot and I can't believe I've started. I literally used to go into pitch meetings like that. And then I'd be like, and then someone turned around and hey, said... Hey, pitch meetings in your own company or before when you're employed? No, no, now, now. No. Like, I've, <laughs> I have stopped doing that. I'd go in and go, I know, I, I'm a real idiot. I can't believe I've set this up. Yeah. But it's almost like I have this inner monologue that I have to get out. Yeah. Because I can't believe... Because I feel people will be looking at me and thinking that. That's what I feel. I feel people are looking at me and thinking, how has this idiot managed to do this? That's what I think. <laughs> but I've stopped doing that now because I realise, actually, I have created something. I have set up a business, you know, single-handed. I have built a team. I now have a great co-founder. You know, I've, I've managed to do this. And actually, I'm not an idiot. Right, that's a great lead into my next question. Do you believe in the concept of a self-made man or woman? Um, like the Alan Sugar thing. I started off unloading blah, 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 flower stalls. Then I was building the Amsterdam Yeah, I mean, Mala. it's all about what, what you do with the opportunities that are handed to you. Yeah. And a lot of life is about luck and being in the right place at the right time and who you know and... And that sort of thing. Have you been lucky? Um, Maybe. I mean, I I think, you know, I was a kind of, not an A-grade student, a B-grade student, but ended up at a US investment bank. And my my first job in the city was as an intern at Lehman Brothers. Um, And this was back in the day when word... Well, spell check didn't work that well. So I I had this cover letter which was full of... Errors, um, and then liaise. Liaise was the word. Oh yeah, so many two eyes. eyes. Yeah, that's it. I, one eye, and then um, and I, I got I got the job um, on the intern program, and I was like, "How's this happened?" Um, and then the guy that was my my mentor or this um, took me for lunch after uh, after I'd been there for a couple of weeks, and he just kind of said, "Look." Just before you go off to get other jobs, maybe spell check your cover letter and all the rest of it. And I just said to him, Steve, why did you give me the yeah, job? Yeah, why did I get through? And he said, out of all the people I interviewed, you were the one that would have died trying because I was so, I don't know, enthusiastic. I was like, oh, well, it's okay. not enthusiastic, is it? It's it's more than that. I it's a sustained like, enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, and and I must admit, so when I when I did the Lehman's job. Um, Day one of internship and all these other lovely interns, everyone's work shadowing. 
It took me about half a day for me to turn around and to say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do work shadowing for eight weeks. Give me a job. Give me something to do. Yeah, and then uh, um, the next day they handed me the guilt's desk and they just said, you can support the guilt's desk. Um, in what way? Um, because well, it, it was in operation, so I just basically used to go and collect the tickets and check them against the thing. And, you know, it wasn't... It wasn't massively complicated. I was a graduate, you know, while I was kind of in year two or three of university. You know, it's something I could have done. And I was yeah. really pleased I asked to do it because then I just did a job for eight weeks, actually longer, because then I could stay on because I wasn't work shadowing or doing some little project. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I, I got an internship at um, Bearstones. No, notice both companies are no longer around. <laughs> <laughs> we may have to say goodbye to HSBC in a fever. <laughs> um, and at Bear Stearns, I, um, the interview process was half an hour. For an American investment bank, where it's normally like, you know, 50 million interviews. And it was just because actually the, the guy that hired me, he was, um, I think he was an SMD at the time, Simon just said, from your CV, I can see your qualifications. And from the interview, all I needed to know was whether I could get 110% out of you. And how, I, did, how did they work that out? Again, I think it's that overbringing enthusiasm of kind of like, I will die trying, <laughs> <laughs> even if I can't do this. Mm. Um, and then fortunately, you know, they gave me a job the following year. I hated it. <laughs> and thankfully, they made me redundant and I ended up, um, you know, fell into investment management, which I feel was the holy grail of the city. So, yeah. Do you think that's an important quality then, that kind of tenacity or that almost like... Because um, there's so many options for people. There's so many distractions, number one, outside of work, and there's so many options. And there's also this kind of, like, mantra of, like... Um, I almost feel like it's just it's just so easy just to choose something else if something isn't working out for you. I see it in people that go into roles quite a lot. Is there... I mean, I don't think stay there 10 years, but some of you are literally just doing like one year, two years, moving on. No, um, I mean, I, I was brought up in a, in a culture where my mum lost everything, so money didn't mean anything to her. She always mm. said, you know, you should be able to work, but you could lose what you have tomorrow. Yeah. And also, my, my dad had a similar work ethic of teaching us the value of money and the idea that you work in order to enjoy your life elsewhere. Yeah. So, for me, I've always kind of worked backwards from what do I want in the future and yeah. what how can I get that now instead of working forwards um yeah I, I mean you do see that now where there's a level of entitlement because you've you know got this level of qualification and you've beat this many number of people to the job it's a little bit like top gun right you kind yeah. of been told you're the best of the best and therefore you must be best of the best yeah that's, that's a control mechanism isn't it to, to yeah. be told that oh, I've seen that in big companies. It's almost like well, a... you see, you see, you'll see it. So if you see people, I don't know, for instance, on a certain intake, as opposed to just someone just getting a job there, yeah. they're kind of earmarked and groomed for greatness, which yeah. may or may not come true because you're hedging your bets, right? That that young person is actually going to deliver and stay loyal and all yeah. the rest of it. But if in your company you aren't treating people yeah. to hold on to them. I mean, you see that a lot in the in in the, a lot of the banks now, who are really struggling with their own culture, and yeah. then you're seeing a lot of um, other things going wrong with, with you know regulatory things going wrong, and that stems from culture. People feeling like they can do that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, 
That's an interesting thing about um, loyalty. How do you define loyalty? What does it mean? Within within an organisation or? I, th I think so. I mean, I'm interested in every interpretation of the word because the, the more I the more I experience in the world, the less I like that word. I don't know what it actually means. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think loyalty in an organisation goes two ways. I think often people are far more loyal to a firm than a firm is to you. So if you... I've seen so many people, and you have probably as well because you're in recruitment, so you see them at that point in time. How many, how many times do you find there is someone who's got an extra exemplary CV? They do lots of extra ex, extracurricular stuff at work on X, Y or Z steering committee and on the side of the desk project. And if the company wants to make you redundant tomorrow, yeah. it's done. Yeah. Like that. They have not sat down and thought, oh, God, Tom has to pay his mortgage or Sarah has to pay the school fees or whatever it is. Yeah, they yeah. have not thought about well, they're you. they just looking, looking after their parent, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Which actually happens for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. They have not thought about that at all. Yeah. But yet that person has missed big life-changing moments because they've had to be at work or, you know, or mm. I think that's where the loyalty in the workplace is skewed. Your people are, or the employee is loyal to a construct, which is the brand of the company. That, again, I find that fascinating because I, I have built my business in the last seven years around individuals and not companies. I would say I would... I want to work with certain people. So if, if so-and-so from this company moves, so would my relationship. Because for me, the recognition you can get from an individual on how you've shaped their team, their life, that type of thing, that's more valuable to oh, me. Relationships are never with a firm. It's always with an individual. Yeah. I mean, again, going back to us being human beings to start yeah. with. Yeah. You know, our paymasters may have... A company account but yeah yeah it is a little bit bizarre when you think that people become loyal to a, a corporation or a brand it feels like you're just loyal to a yeah, but who, i'd question are, are you really loyal to that brand or I, th I've, I honestly think it is it is the person the salesperson whoever you have the relationship with that you're loyal to it isn't so the word, let, let's just do with the word loyal. So I think, I don't like the word loyal because to me it shows an, um, an asymmetrical relationship. And I, Ben and Bev never need to be loyal to one another unless, let's say, Ben's treated you poorly and you're saying, I'm going to put the way I'm gonna, I should react and feel on hold and I'm going to, you know, cover that with almost like a promise of, you know, and I'm hoping you're going to come around. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I mean, if we're two decent human beings, yeah. we like each other. I like to think we have a friendship, but I also respect you massively professionally. Um, Thank you. Big old loving. Yeah, it's a massive bed and loving. Yeah, I mean, there doesn't need to be any question about loyalty because I don't right. think you're going to stab me in the back. And I think, I but think it, if I did, then there shouldn't be anything over. You know, no. this, it, 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 if it's asymmetrical, we shouldn't be covering it. So when I, when I talk to people and they go, I, I should be loyal to them because they've been good to me. 
it's like I would rather treat all my friends, employees, clients in a way of I'm going to treat you rightly and if it doesn't work out, then it doesn't work out. But also if, it, if it's loyalty about business, doing business with each other, yeah, even that doesn't make any sense because it doesn't. You know, someone might be your friend and you might have done business with them and you might do business with them again in the future. Yeah. But A, you should be giving value to your customer, so forget that. Yes. And they shouldn't expect you just to go to them. They shouldn't expect that level of loyalty. Now that's the thing. This is where this was the setup. If you think about the industry and you think about lots of industries that get smashed and broken down, it's because either Technology or regulation or a number of other things break that human connection, which was about doing a favour to a friend, being loyal. Like I even oh, like the current scandal that's going on right now. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I, uh, I must admit, I'm not, I'm not sure I can talk about this, and you can always cut it out. But there is a big issue with people. For instance, if you take a fund manager relationship and someone moving, and you just handing money over because they've moved. That there should be no question that, that that shouldn't happen. There needs to be the same level of due diligence, and you need to have, you need to think about the underlying customer because they have been lo- not only loyal, but they are entrusting you well, with their money. They've trusted your. Yeah, I think trust is more important. I think being able to, you know, if you make that decision of not, you know, being loyal, yeah. of saying to your friend or whoever that, do you know what? Being honest with them and telling them that you're not going to be doing it. That's more important to not break trust than do something behind their back or or just do it because you know them. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I'm not saying it's um, I'm superhuman in the sense of uh, there's one client in particular that we both know and he's a fantastic guy and he has very kindly given us repeat work and we've always fulfilled the obligation. He stayed with us when there's been tough times. And if he was to go to somebody else, I know my first instinct as a stupid, dumb human would be like, well, that's not fair. Well, it's, it completely, you know, it's yeah, free you know choice. What? Yeah, but you know what? You're allowed to do that as well. You are allowed to, though. If someone does that to you, you are allowed to have a weep about it and go, not fair. Oh, oh, I am. And I would do. And I would weep about it. But then my hopefully my higher self would kick in and go, and this is the, that, that practice. Would be, so that would be your... Your not just your EQ, but that that would be your EQ kind of going, kicking or in. your emotions kicking in, and it's and we've been so programmed not to have any emotions in the workplace. Yeah, that's a funny thing as well, isn't it? But you know, which is just ridiculous. Like yeah. because th- th- there are there are emotions at play; they're just not recognised. Because behaviour economics has picked up on things like this about, from a physiological perspective, how people make decisions. They're like, I'm in complete control of all my faculties, and this is exactly what I mean. But then you ask them then after lunch, <laughs> and they might be a bit different, give you a different answer. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the things with, it, with having dyspraxia. And actually, there's a, a lovely lady in, in the city who's got ADHD, and she and I were having lunch together trying to manoeuvre around this giant canteen. <laughs> which she was making jokes about. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and she said something really interesting, which was, as I was, we were talking about professional masks, and she goes, oh, who's got time to put a professional mask on? I've just got to put a normal mask on. <laughs> <laughs> and like, suddenly that's what struck me. It's like, oh, God, that's exactly what I've been doing. I don't have time to put on a professional mask. I never have. And that's why all my emotions are on display. Yeah. Because I'm hiding the other bit, the dyspraxic bit of me. Yeah, that's yeah. hard enough. Yeah. And I, I don't think... 
I don't think we should expect that because I think the unintended consequence of expecting people to have different personas, work and home and all, you know, has led us to this situation where actually you've got this higher level entitlement amongst people coming through the door because they are able to act really professional and all the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, There are always unintended consequences to any decision we make down the line. And even now, for instance, in, in, in... this whole debate of how we shape the culture of the industry. Yeah. We even then have to be really careful of every step we we take of thinking, well, what is this going what does this mean down the line? Yeah. You know. Because we're seeing lots of companies rushing to make decisions and it's like Are there any things you think they're like more private ideas you have about how society might move, what is seen as acceptable now that we deemed as completely unacceptable in ten years? Is there anything like that that we do on a day-to-day basis you observe and you think that's been dignified because everyone does it? Um, yeah, like, so, so, so when I'm asked about, um, like, gender diversity, for instance, um, my, my, and, 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 and ethnic um, diversity in the industry, uh, I say the same thing, actually, is that in society it's not socially acceptable to be a racist to be openly or even in the closet, it's not acceptable to say anything. So people are too afraid now to even debate anything to do with race, to say any words, talk about black. You're not allowed to because you might be deemed a racist. With gender, for instance, it's okay still in society to be a misogynist. You know, there's still lots of raised eyebrows and stuff if, if someone, if a woman makes the comment that something's not acceptable. And I think that's what might shift. Yeah, I really um, does. Down the line, um, but it won't—it won't be our generation. It's—it's it's our generation, and every generation before us ploughs the way for the generation behind. Yeah, you know, it's my—it's our generation that's raising the next generation of boys and girls. You know. Yeah, I don't see a lot of that in people. We're roughly the same age. I was born yeah. in the seventies. Yeah. 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 Late seventies. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, I think we are the same. Age. We are the same age. Yeah. So. Um, I don't see it when I look at people who are younger than me, and I sometimes sometimes see that quickly followed up by a pseudo, I know I'm being, you know, um, sexist comment to kind of, you know, to protect it. And you don't really know where the truth is in there, but you're okay with the person being self-aware enough that they've made a joke at their own expense, but what have you. Or we can't say that anymore type thing. Yeah. If, if I was around somebody who genuinely did say something like that, I think I would. But I just, I just happen to well, not you be. Have to look at, you always have to look at the history of where we've come from. Yes. And, and a lot of people don't, right? It's just yeah. like, well, what have, you, what have you got to complain about? You know, I, get, I have people who say that, you know. About you? Yeah, to me. I mean, like, you know, people who are close to me will say, well, you know, but you've got a nice life. Like, you're, you've got privilege. And yes, I have privilege in some aspects, but there are other aspects where... As an Asian woman, I don't have privileges and I've had to fight, but because I've managed to fight enough to get to where I am, it means that I must have had more privilege than someone else. No, I've just fought a lot harder and I've had to betray some of myself by assimilating in ways that I may not have done. But, you know, when you, it's mind boggling when you just think that it's just been just over 100 years when some women got the vote in this country. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's huge, right? I mean, I, I don't think we really understand how how half the population who contribute just as much and who we all came from because they were our mothers 
did not have the same rights and are not considered to be as intelligent. And I'm sorry, but just look at the world around us. Mm. One gender alone has made a complete mess of things. Mm. So it's about understanding and accepting that, right? And, it, and it's accepting that, you know, the, the ethnic journey is not just about people assimilating and, and you know, behaving in a certain way in, in our, our country. There's a whole history yeah. of horrific acts that have Absolutely. happened in order for people to end up where we are. I mean, personally, I'm someone I like to see people as human. The yeah. first and foremost, we're human beings. Yeah. Um, it's a shame we don't, we seem to have this kind of gang mentality. You know, obviously human beings are tribal, so we do feel threatened by other people. Um, you would hope people would think they or observe history and be able to I don't think, think so. Their way I, think, I think, again, like, like they say, that, you know, um, History is written by the victors, and yeah. you know we're not always educated on what happened. But also, we shouldn't look backwards. But we're in a real—you know—you just look around the world, and we're not exactly hitting a home run at the moment, are we? Anywhere. Uh-huh. But I, I think that's the state of flux between. Uh, there's just so much information now that it's all—all all these kind of rivers are hitting each other full on, and you're you're seeing the pendulum swing one way and the other way. Some of the. Some of the best things in the last five years have happened in the world. Some of the worst things have happened, you know, in a way that you might expect of this deck, you know, where we're headed. Um, I, I really think with communication, everything gets better and better and better and better because you go empathize. And also, that whole thing about that is true. History was written by the victors. But there's even like uh, in, you know, on Sky now, there's Chernobyl, the um, documentary. Amazing, but when you think what it must have been like to live in a Soviet state, ex-Soviet state, or you know, you just think, my God, it's just, you know, and there's good and there's bad in there too. No, it's brilliant, and I kind of um, we're on episode four. I'm on episode four too. One more, one more. We're doing it tonight. Yeah, 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 me too. I did turn around to my husband last night and I said, "Do you think this was this was the catalyst for the end of communism?" And he kind of looked Mm. at me and went, "No." And then I googled it, and and I think. Yeah, and then it's only in the last few days because of the series. Yeah, Gorbachev yeah. said yes, it was. It was, it was. Death Nail. Five years later, it was the end of Queensland, and it was yeah. Chernobyl. And just to watch, because I do, because because again, um, my husband's the same age as me. He's actually my younger than me by eleven days. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we have to, we, all our cultural references are the same, exactly the same, um, which is great for when you're trying to figure out when some song was on the, in the chart. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Back when we were in sixth form or something like that. Um, but I said to him, do you remember, he was like, do you remember, do you remember this on the news? And I said, I actually do remember. Mm. I didn't understand what it meant. Yeah. My dad used to force us to watch the news. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I was just like, I remember there was this kind of fear of a cloud, you know, the water, kind of yeah. rain coming with this. And I remember thinking, what does this mean that we're going to... Yeah. Um, yeah, God, it's a great series though, isn't it? It's great. And living under a regime that doesn't trust itself. And there was a great moment when they said... Um, you're too naive to be a threat when he asks. Well, the other one was the, the verification one. He's like, trust yes. but verify. Trust but verify. And, he, and, and like, a... they're following me and someone's following them. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah, but I... how can, I mean, but again, that goes back to culture. How can you, if you don't trust people just yeah. to get on with stuff? And what's the point? Life's so short. You know, once someone's gone, they're gone. It's like you've got a finite number of years where you actually can have any impact. You know, that like your working life, it's like 30 years, 40 years. Yeah. It's not like you've got 
a long time to do a lot. Just I think that's more in the public consciousness now than ever. That concept is now. It's a, it can be a bit seductive. It's good for marketing as well, but that is definitely people have this concept of life is short. It adds a lot of pressure because when you when um you know this was actually do you watch um, Fleabag? She said something amazing in series two. She went, she's in the confession box. She said, I miss uh, being told what to do. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people feel like that around us. They just need to know, we're doing the right, you know. Decision making, because there's always going to be someone who makes decisions for you at some point in your life. And when you don't have that. Yeah. Well, we've got, you know, there's always going to be leaders and followers and you need both. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's kind of the more emancipated everyone is and the more they seek out, you know, there is a lot more responsibility, like running your own company, things like that. You've got that. The buck stops. It's I know. so many great things about it. There's so many things in terms of, you know, if you can deal with the... If you can, if you can switch off, I think, then that's fine. And sometimes, I mean, I've, and, you, and you have it as well. Sometimes you just want to be able to say, can someone just, just do that for me? Can someone just tell me I'm on the right track? But if it, all, it always <laughs> does stop with you. And you're like, oh. And, then, and the, the, the problem is as well, is when you do delegate it out, it never gets done how, not how you want it to, but it's your vision. So you have to then go back and go, well, actually, no, that's not what we wanted. Yeah, yeah. This is what we wanted. And it's like, well, I might as well have just done it myself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm really lucky that Mandy, my co-founder, and I, she, I mean, she, she joined me in... September last year and the reason I call her my co-founder is because the very when I first started thinking about this I met met her in the park I was introduced by my ex-nanny who I just had to let go because I'd obviously lost my job and she said I think you should meet this lady oh nice and um, Mandy used to work at the PRI the UNPRI and I think she was surprised that I knew what that was yeah yeah and I was surprised anyone heard of asset management and then we ended up our kids ended up in the same school kind of a couple of months later. And so she's been my sounding board ever since I started this. And I've taken the coffee. Like, That's fantastic. Do that. So I kind of persuaded her to join me. And, and I said, well, you know, you are actually my co-founder because you've been on the journey with me. Yeah. But she and I are polar opposites. So she's actually quite similar to my husband and I'm very similar to hers. Really? And that's why her relationship works really well. What qualities has she got then? Um, you don't have. Well, so, so she's really balanced. <laughs> really balanced. Yeah. Um, she doesn't procrastinate like I do. Um, I she just she does it. She goes, this needs doing. So she's really good at keeping me on track. She's really logical. Um, super bright, you know. Uh, and and she's just where I'm kind of loud. She's softer. So yeah, I thought you were quite—you take action. I thought you were quite, an, you know, decisive person. I am, but because of because of the way my brain works, often yeah. it's more just if I'm sat at a table, like at home, and I'm meant to be doing some work, I'm just like, you know, I'm it's probably like a puppy, like you know, there's something over there that I need to do. Fly. So I get really Fly. distracted, and and man is really good at just kind of going, okay, we need to do Go this, back. and then do it. Recenter, so, recenter. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, she, she's she's you know she's. She's got a level of credibility that sometimes I just think I don't have, and maybe I do. Um, yeah, I think so. But I think. But it's nice to also have that sounding board. Um, that... Yeah, well, she so she's she's taught me that you know, for instance, for for my level of EQ, like someone sends me a message, and I'm like, oh my God, they've sent me this, and she's like, 
wait 20 minutes, yeah. read it again. Yeah. And then it's amazing. It's been a miracle. That's one bit of advice. So in my head now, it's not just like, nah, nah, nah. It's like 20 minutes later. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, they weren't shouting it at me. Yeah, and yeah, I can yeah. respond without. Or even if it's a, it is a pernicious thing, even 24 hours, you're like, oh, forget it. It doesn't matter. You know, that's, I would normally react in the yeah, moment. Yeah, but someone like me, I would be able to I'm literally like, oh, I have to respond right now. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 I'm the same. Yeah. I've had to Why do they say pause. this to me? It's like, you know, I'm overly theatrical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> it's me. Yeah. Um, I, on, talking about you and um, your name, because you told us this, at, um, it was a thing you did with uh, Justin on Akusi yeah. and Remy Ray and a few others. Uh, and you talked about your name. What do you? So my question is this, and this is on behalf of Alvin, who's who's not um, uh, sadly present for this one. But what do you feel when you say your name? Which name? <laughs> my exactly. real one. Yeah. Um. So I like I like the fact. Well, I'm someone that's always had nicknames anyway. Someone's always like my name's always been abbreviated. Um, Bev Shah for me is kind of my city work persona, um, and it means that. I almost have like a my, my superhero kind of pseudonym. I can kind of hide where I need to hide. So when I need to be mum or you know beanie running because that's what they call me beanie. Some of my full beanie. Name, yeah, so my full name is Gavini. The first bit comes good. from the first bit, and then the beanie's from the last bit. Yeah, and I can you know I can be something that's not doing all this other great stuff because I, I find it a bit weird when people find out. Like, you know, mums at my school or, or um, family members, they see me do things like, you know, I was on, on the BBC or doing things like that. And they're like, wow, it's amazing. And they look at you different. And I'm not saying, like, by a long shot that I'm kind of no, no, yeah, known yeah. or doing, but the more profile you get, people start to look at you as yeah. if you're not you. And it's like, but I'm still a normal, I mean, I still do normal things. I'm still the same person. Yeah. And, and for me, you know, the Indian girl in me will always be. Bavini, you know, that will always be me. It's a um, lovely name, by the way, Bavini. But, you know, the, but again, in the in the city, like, you know, because obviously we, I spoke about this, that I had to get the job, I had to be Bev Shah. Yeah. Um, you know, no, no, my CV wouldn't even get through the door anywhere. And So really, really, you got so many knockbacks with your full name. Well, I didn't get any letters. I, like, sent a whole bunch out. And then I sent another bunch. And this was when they used to have those milk brand magazines and I wrote to everyone. And, um, yeah, I just wouldn't get, I wouldn't get the job. I wouldn't pass whatever selection process was going on. Yeah. Um, which was just a baffling... I think it was someone in my careers office at university said, well, try a different name. Um, and actually, when I was made redundant from Bear Stearns, I was given, like, this whole pack to help me kind of find another job. And one of them, there was a book. And in that... In that book, it said, if you've got an unusual name, change it. It actually said, I wish I still have to see if I've still got that book. But it actually said it in there. And I suppose I didn't mind so much. Because the other thing is is that there's always a slight awkwardness when people purposefully mispronounce your name. Like there's obviously going to be some people who can't pronounce it, but then there'll people who'll be like, well, oh, you know, they're not trying, so they just go for the nearest thing they or, can think. Or you know, I've had people call me Bavinda, which is like, well, there's no D E or R in my name. Bavinda would actually imply, I know, it would imply that I'm Sikh because if you've got Inda or um, Deep at the end of your name, it's actually what Sikh people do. Um, and I'm just kind of like, you know. And I've had people go, oh, oh, whatever, when I've corrected them. Oh, whatever. It's like, 
well, actually, no, it's not whatever. That, that, that to me, is when I'd... It's like you're being I'm, awkward. And when I was working, and people would do that. In my head, I'd just be, like, racist. In my head, I'd just be, like, you know, <laughs> obviously got an issue. Um, yeah. So it just made my life a lot easier. And when you're working with people who are predominantly white male and don't probably have many ethnic minority friends, you kind of just go, well, what's the easiest thing? I mean, the thing that really bothers me is when people call me Beverly, because I'm like, what the fucking Beverly? <laughs> That's a like, boring name. Oh, sorry. No, no, I'm not, no, I don't mean that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not Beverly. It's, like, <laughs> it's actually Bavini. If you want to kind of say my full name, call me. Yeah, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, what are you scared of? Spiders. <laughs> and we're done. Um, yeah, I'm not really, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a brave person. I'm not kind of someone who's going to, I don't know. But, yeah, I'm uh, not really scared of things like... What, do you mean, like, failure and that sort of thing? No, no, I mean, just anything. No, spiders, spiders, spiders is, is, yeah. Is fun. <laughs> I am absolutely <laughs> petrified of spiders. Do you think about death every day? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I've, I've lost both my parents, because uh, my dad passed away a few years after my mum. Heart attack, the broken heart, really. And, oh, it's so um, sad. That is a genuine thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was absolutely broken-hearted. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, because I just... Death is one of those things you just don't know when it's coming, so what's the point of thinking about it, you know? I, I mean, it's funny, because my husband's the opposite. He's more morbid about things. Oh, mm. we're halfway through our lives. So I'm like, mm. how old are you going to live to? How do you know you're halfway through? Yeah, you, you might be in the last few months. And then say, oh, well, I'm going to die in my 60s like my parents. I know you are. like... Yeah. No, I don't. I don't actually. I I think about less so death and more kind of how much time I have with my kids and what, what milestones yeah. I have with them. Yeah. I think also by having we you know tend to people especially in the city tend to have kids a bit later. Mm. You suddenly realise you know around the school gates we're all in our kind of forties if not fifties. Yeah. Yeah. And you think oh you know. <laughs> yeah, I have a few friends who are a lot younger and, and actually I'm thinking, God, they'll be in their 40s when their kids are past university and I'll be in my 60s. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a different... It's that, yeah, you know, will I be around to actually, I don't know, see grandkids or... That's what I think about. What do you hope that you kind of um, pass on to your kids in terms of like, education or, or any ways of thinking? Um so there's two kind of there's a couple of lessons I want for my my kids. So I'm not worried about um, academic stuff with them. I don't not I don't push them to do things. I just think you find your natural level. Yeah. And if you're not interested in school, you're not interested in school. But those two people tend to be the most successful. So I try and find things that they're interested in. For me, I I truly believe that if I want my kids to have self-esteem, which is way more point, important than confidence in life, uh, having self-belief in themselves, I need to give them the happiest childhood possible um and so, so that's that's one thing that's important and then the other thing for me a lesson for my kids is about um entitlement and independence mm. so <laughs> i have sat by my six-year-old town he's seven now and pointed out the window at the bins and basically well, i think he was being a bit of a shitbag basically <laughs> and, and he's actually a really good kid but i kind of just said to him look my legal obligation is to you until you're 16 years old and then there's the big wide world yeah. he thought i was saying he'd have to live in the bin <laughs> and I talked about living in the bin for two weeks and eating out of the bin but now we kind of have, have followed that on because actually 
I don't want my kids to think that they're just going to have to live with us, rely on us. I want them to have that drive to be independent, to have to, you know, sustain themselves. Yeah. And not think, oh, mummy and daddy have this house or blah, 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 and I'm going to get it. Because I don't, I don't want them to have that. My, my you, didn't dad, have that you didn't have that yourself, did you? No, and my, my dad actually did have... Um, we lived in a smallish house, but he did have money. Yeah. But he con- he always said to us, "You're not. You're, you're not money. getting it." Or you know, he said, "One day you might, but you know, I want you. If you want that, like, so he 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 gave us a taste for nice things. Like we had the occasional really nice holiday, and you know, went to some really nice restaurants. Not all the time, but occasionally. And then he'd say, "If you want this, when you grow up." You need to yeah. do this. And, and the other thing my dad did with that, that was absolutely the best thing he ever did, actually. So I went to boarding school from 8 to 18, and he said I had to pay him back. Wow. <laughs> and I genuinely thought I had to pay him back. That is quite amazing yeah. of him. I and kind of said, love him a bit for that. Yeah, and so if I came home and I said, oh, <laughs> Dad, I really want to do art, he went, yeah, 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 you can do art when you've paid me back. That's amazing. Everything had to be vocational or, you know, something that, in his mind anyway, science or maths or whatever, yeah. that added value. He, he was like, none of this creative stuff. Well, that's quite Asian anyway. If I said I wanted to do a, a gap year, <laughs> <laughs> you could do a gap year once you paid me back. Uh, you know, so every, everything was about basically making sure we made the right decisions in order to, who, you know, be successful or have a success in his mind was being secure and secure is obviously having a decent income yeah so that that's what he pushed us to do do you are you thankful for that yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful for it because it did lead me to make decisions around you know going into a profession that would remunerate me instead of as much as you know it's great if you don't do that and if you don't have the opportunity but it was something that he always said to me you know you're an asian girl you're gonna have to fight a lot harder you might lose everything tomorrow you need to kind of think wisely work is there to pay for the nice stuff that you want not yeah you know i mean my parents came from that generation where actually work wasn't about fulfillment yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about a means to an end. It pays your bills. And that's, that's what he was doing. And I'm really grateful for that because, you know... And I don't want my kids to think that, oh, they're just going to fall back on what we've got. And obviously, you know, they are the generation that are all going to inherit and all the rest of it. But I want them to know that they need to go out and strike out on their own. Whatever they want to do. I'm not going to say to them that they need to... Like a lot of Asian parents, doctor, accountant, lawyer. Yeah, I'm not going yeah. to say that to them because actually the jobs of tomorrow are changing. That's right, yeah. So like for my son, he absolutely loves video games and I'm, you know, just encouraging him to say, well, do you know, actually, if you really want to be a good good at playing video games, you need to understand how, how, how they're made. The great thing about video games is they back in like the um, 70s and 80s, a program would write the whole game. Yeah. Someone else would then publish it. Now it's almost like a movie set. There's so many different parts in, in games. Actually, it, it is more difficult to make a game. It costs more money. But there's so much more for people to, to do and be involved in that scene now. It's actually more accessible than yeah, ever. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want... I don't want to ram, like, the traditional academia down their throat so they kind of then reject it because, you know, you always reject what your parents kind of make you do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we've had the conversation about kids before, but... Um, <laughs> so someone was... I always say, like, basically, basically... 
my my kids are actually quite um they're, they're quite easy they're like you know they're, they're seven and she's going to be five, five in two days they're really easy kids like they, they play together and they get on with stuff around the house and they don't bother me <laughs> and I, I, I love them to Mommy's bits. Mummy's drinking. Don't no, bother. No, no, no. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love them to bits. I, I, you know, and if they want, but and the reason so, you know, whereas I have friends who like tearing their hair out because their kids are always like, "Mummy, mummy, mummy, yeah. play with me, play with me, do this." I'm like, oh, wait. And the reason is because I basically find kids really boring. Yeah. <laughs> I find kids really boring. It's so a nice I, artifact for yeah. them to listen to. So, so when. I mean, I love mine, and I love having a cuddle with them, but I've never found, like, you know, play, playing with... It. And maybe it's my just practicing did, brain. Did you used logically. to play as a kid on your own? Like, with, yeah. with, with dolls uh, and, and things? Or? And my mum's always used to say that. I was really happy playing on my own. You know, I, I didn't need entertaining. You know, I'd hang out with her, but I didn't need to be told, I'm like, mummy, can you come and do this with me or that with me? And my kids are the same. And, and That's I, good. Yeah, and I've never, I've never felt that, that kind of helicopter parenting micromanagement. That's got to be a gene thing, right? I don't know. I just don't, you know... Like my, or maybe they have no option. Maybe, maybe it's my managerial style. <laughs> I'm not into micromanaging. What kind of management style with your kids? I used to play with like uh, dolls like He-Man and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And I would be away for hours with stories well, yeah. on my own though well you know what what do they say the kind of the, the tech geniuses of palo alto the kind of you know steep jobs or whatever is saying that oh you know, yeah this is welcome it's boredom it's, it's boredom that gets the ideas going right because i remember my, my parents really used to buy us lots of toys and things um <laughs> poor me no but culturally as well it wasn't really you know they didn't grow up when my mum and dad were one of my dad was one of 10 and my mum was one of 11 it wasn't really you know you didn't really have you can Lots play with... You just play with, outside. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, outside in the trees of Africa. Um, <laughs> you really have toy shops. A tree shops. full of children. Yeah, you really have toy shops or whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so, 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 so they themselves weren't... I think they weren't really aware that, you know, you people buy their kids lots of toys. So they, they, yeah. they didn't really buy us lots of toys and things. And I had a Barbie doll, but I didn't have a Barbie house or anything. So I made one out of a cupboard. Okay, yeah, yeah makes yeah. sense. I made it out of a cupboard. I had all this kind of other stuff, and I was like, that's a bed. Chisel, planer. Yeah, but I, I still remember this, and I think, God, my daughter has a doll's house. Yeah. Which I would have absolutely loved. Yeah. But that's actually, the, mem- but the memory of making a doll's house myself out of a cupboard. Yeah, yeah. I've just it's thinking, brilliant. Just as good, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Just good. And yeah, it's the same old story. You can, they'll be playing with the box rather than the toy. I think if you've got that imagination, that's a fun thing. Yeah, I was thinking about child on the when you talk about child labour laws and just how recent they changed in the nineteenth century. Before that, kids were literally slaves. Oh no, wait, let me. What is, what, what is the legal parameters? I know I get done for like. <laughs> I make him make his sister breakfast. So I don't want to get in trouble. But you know, if they weren't like clearing a chimney or something like that, yeah. they were out pulling carts. Or... Oh no, we're fine. I don't. Oh, you're fine. Really yeah. But you know, and then they became things to be sold to. Like marketing, and then that's when toys came about. But in other countries and different backgrounds, those it, depending on the laws and what have you, depending on how then society reinterpreted the relationship between adults and children. Yeah, but it's, it's, I'm not saying that you know. No, but 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 you're right. There's so much plastic toot that you can buy them. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally guilty of it, and I'm feeding my own childhood dreams, you know, <laughs> of wanting this, that, and the other, and they just don't care. 
yeah. fills up your house, you step on it, and then you just go, I just want to just chuck it away. And they just want, they just want that instant hit of opening something that's new. You know, it's a generation of commercial beings, basically. Yeah. <laughs> God, ready-made. <laughs> the I mean, dopamine when you, internet. When you've got yeah. things like the Amazon app on your phone and you can just buy anything you want. Yeah. I mean, I've actually just recently deleted all shopping apps off my phone. Yeah. And I've... Because it was just that, even for me, it's like, oh, I need that. I was going to get it. I need that. And actually now I have to think about it before I actually go and get the laptop or yeah. go to the shop and buy it. You're self-imposed. Self-imposed, yeah. <laughs> Regulation. Um, just um, one last quick question, trying to think of a good one. Um, what's the most powerful effect you think you can have on another person? Kindness. That's a good one. I think that's probably the right, the ultimate one, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, I think it's kindness. I think you can... You can leave people with feeling Correct. like crap, or you can leave them feeling happy. And yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> I want to do another follow-up one because I want to know about the boarding school years. Oh yeah, can we do a follow-up one on that? That's got to be amazing, isn't it? That's from it's eight hot. to eighteen, you became a young woman in that time frame. Yeah, and, and you were one of seven girls. Seven girls boarding. There was a couple more, but I was the only girl in my class. And, I, and also, Who I didn't what? arrive. I didn't arrive. Oh, the only girl you were taught with boys. Yeah. So, so I was in. So my first boarding school was from eight till eleven. Yeah. Um, and I was in. Well, I was eight. So, but I joined. I didn't even join at the start of the year, which was that. That was even another tricky thing. It was like I joined in the winter term. Yeah. And I arrived, and there's, you know, it's, it's she's late. About Eighteen boys, I think. And no way. You rocked up and, and they were already up. started the term. Yeah, so we were already like one term in and I rock up and they also were like, what What the hell? Like, what are you doing here? Yeah, what's well, with the girl? <laughs> and I will always remember... Um, <laughs> I mean, actually, it was a really happy time. Once I kind of got, you know... Um, once they kind of realised that I was a girl and it was a bit different. I'm ready to play with you boys. Yeah, it was fine. But but also it's that age when you think boys smell and you think girls smell and you don't want to stand next to them in the queue. Oh my God, you were in the um, pit. Were they all white boys? No, there was actually a diverse group of boys there. Oh, nice. It was different. Um, yeah, it was just... It was, I mean, I just remember... I, I remember... I don't ever remember being excluded i don't remember feeling like you know i wasn't a part of it for a, a long period of time actually i've you know they did actually include me in a lot of stuff um which was nice because once they got used to me it was like oh she's just in our class <laughs> but i mean a big novelty as well because you had a, a yeah. different viewpoint like i remember when we were at school ask a girl this question see what she says they always had a completely I different boy, view i won't say his name because i do remember his name but um he crawled under my desk and squirted his Lynx Oriental under my skirt. Oh, God. <laughs> it was very cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lynx Oriental? Yeah. But just, that would I have just, just come out. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very... Uh, no, it, was, it, was, it was a really... That, it was a really happy place. I just... Um, about seven, eight years ago, I went on a conference to Cape Town and just... So a boy I went to school with happened to be in the same hotel I was staying in. And I just figured that out because he put it on Facebook. 
And I kind of messaged him on Facebook and said, oh, by the way, I'm staying there as well. Are you still going to be there? I haven't seen him for like 20, yeah. if not longer years. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to be there. I'm going to go on a little trip, but I'll be back. And, and the first thing he did, as soon as he arrived in the hotel, is he called me. And the moment we saw each other, it was like, I don't know, going back in time, we were both so happy. And we just, you know, so I, he, met, he met up with me every day after this conference and came and drank with us and stuff. And, and we were just talked about the people and just both agreed that it was the happiest time. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, but like when we saw each other, we just clinged to each other. And yeah. It, was just like, it's not, it wasn't all in my head, was it? I was like, no. it wasn't all in my head that it was a really happy place. He was like, no, it was a really happy, Isn't that wonderful? wonderful place. Yeah. There's something by sharing an experience with somebody, especially when you're a kid, and then coming back to them later in life that makes you feel like, a you know, I've done okay, haven't I? Or Yeah, because I think we were all too young maybe to have those kind of lifelong friendships because, you know, it would be difficult to keep in touch. So we all yeah. went off to different schools. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think... It was only because of Facebook that you managed to kind of find people, uh, but you wouldn't really want, want to go and see them. It's been a long time. Um, but, yeah, it was a really, really happy place. And then I went to an all-girls school after that. Damn, damn, damn. <laughs> Episode two. <laughs> The um, bitches. <laughs> no, but there might Although be a reason okay. why I ended up in a very male-dominated <laughs> industry. Um, <laughs> no, just, um, I think, again, I don't know how much going to, like, kind of, a, you know, growing up around boys kind of shaped my psyche to then end up in a school full of all this oestrogen and you just kind of, like, you know... And a whole new set of rules, I imagine. Yeah, the hierarchy shifts. Oh, I'd love to, I want to... Come back soon and we, I want to talk all about this. Maybe we just make this a podcast, just me talking to you. I think we should do this. I think it should just be us talking <laughs> no about one different else. things. That was so much fun. Thanks, Bev. No, thank you for having me, Bev. Cheers. <laughs>